And I think it's a wake-up call for all of us to realize that what you say is so important. It's the first week of February, and welcome to Episode 63 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we are thrilled to have the former senator from Tennessee, the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and my old boss, Bob Corker, on the podcast. Senator, thanks for being with us today. That's good to be with you. Thanks for your great service to our country. Appreciate that. Uh, So you've, as we were just talking before the podcast, we're on a sabbatical from public life for the last couple of years. (laughs) What are your thoughts about how things have gone in Washington while you were gone? Well, it's, uh, it's headed, headed in the same direction it was when I left, and that is, uh, you know, on a little, little bit of a downward uh, uh, situation. But look, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, um, it's going to move into to a little different direction. I, I've liked a lot of the policies that I've, I've seen put in place. I mean, I'll be the first to say that, but uh, the whole public discourse just continued to, uh, to go in a direction that... Uh, I thought was sad for our, our country and certainly what happened on January 6th, who would have ever thought, uh, and, uh, you know, what a sad day for us and, and what it represented. And I'd be glad to talk about that more if you want to. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, you know, uh, it's hard for, I think for any of us who worked in the Capitol not to be profoundly affected by what we saw on the 6th. Uh, I was, I was, you know, uh, pretty, I guess, traumatized is the right word. I, I'd be, uh, we'd very much love to hear kind of how you reacted personally to what you saw. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting Les. I know you're still there in town, even though you're not right in the Capitol, but you know, you get away from it, I, which is a great thing to do um, for, for an extended period of time. And you see this, this, this untruth thing, you know, I, I have these conversations a lot, you know, there's still a lot of people that want to talk about it and, and if you set aside whether you felt like the election was fair or not, which still is a debate for some people, not for me, I quickly, you know, congratulated President-elect Biden and, you know, wished him well in his service. But so if, if you set that whole thing aside, though, Les, you know, people think, well, you know, the voting was changed, you know, they were mailing. OK, we'll set that aside. But for the president of the United States to cause hardworking Americans to believe that Congress could overturn an election or that Vice President Pence could overturn an election. And again, people believe it and him lead them to the place that they were led on January 6th just speaks to the frailty of our democracy, right? I mean, who would have ever thought that uh, a, a sitting president would you know, incite people. Uh, I know people think there were different levels of that, but incite people to come and break into the Capitol uh, to try to overturn an election. I mean, uh, you and I've traveled the world together and, you know, that happens in places that we went to. I mean, in banana republics and maybe a place like Venezuela or whatever, but, but not in the United States. And I think it's a wake up call for all of us to realize that what you say is so important that if you have the other thing that's happened last, I was just on a long phone call, um, is, you know, think about where we are. When you're, I know you've been a lifelong Republican, and I've been a lifelong Republican, and we used to talk about policies, right, like fiscal, 
physical control and America's role in the world and um, alliances and trade and uh, immigration. That ended with President Trump coming in. It was all about being 100% with President Trump for many people, obviously not me and not you, but but think about how dangerous that is, that all of a sudden, and if you talk to these people who run for election, uh, they'll tell you that all people ask about is is not about those policies. Matter of fact, they don't get any questions about policies. They get at, in, a, in a primary on the Republican side, they get asked one thing, are you with Trump? And so uh, think about the danger of that. Uh, we respected President Reagan. We, we, we respected the office of presidency under President Reagan, under President Bush 41, under President Bush 43, and, and certainly expected the office of president under President Trump. But, but we didn't have this fealty to them, right, where you couldn't show a, a, any daylight on any policy or somehow or another you were. So, so I just think there's been a big wake up call, I hope, that will stay with us for a long time. Um, and uh, people realize it's the policies, not the person. Uh, we should show respect, but uh, we got into a very dangerous place as a country. How do you how do you think the Republican Party gets back to that point where it's the policy that we're talking about and not the personality and where uh, these things that we care about, American leadership in the world, that kind of thing is more important than uh, you know, a, a profane name-calling tweet from someone that we think is fighting for us. How, how do we get back to that, those Reagan years or the Bush years yeah. or, or the next evolution of them? Is that, is that even possible? Yeah, I, I think that it is. But, it, you know, the words you just used, I think, are, are choice, and that is fighting for you, right? I mean, that's what uh, all of that behavior uh, indicated to people, that he was the only one that was truly fighting for them. But I think that, you know, it's not going to change – probably by 2022, because they're going to be congressional races and people are going to be worried about primaries. As you know, most of the country now when they run, they don't worry about the general election. They worry about the primary. So, but, it, but it'll be really incumbent upon the standard bearer, the person who ends up being nominated in 2024. Uh, hopefully never again uh, will we see President Trump in that position. At least that's my position. I'm not trying to pass that on to you. But but and so it's unlikely that that we're going to have a personality that's like that. And so and let's face it. I mean, one thing you have to say about him, he had a grip on the Republican Party and on people and on their psyche that we haven't had a a standard bearer have. So that's not going to happen again. I mean, I can't imagine there's anybody who's thinking about running that's going to have that ability to just cause people to be gripped to them. And so it'll have to be more about policies, won't it? Um, it'll have to be about that. And I think by 2024, it's likely we get back to that place. Now, we still have shunned uh, issues like fiscal concerns. You saw Mitch Daniels' op-ed yesterday, I'm sure, where he's saying, hey, a good friend of mine, uh, I'm folding the cards. I mean, those days are over. Apparently, nobody cares anymore. So we're still going to have some big issues to deal with that are not in in – they're not popular today because they cause us to have to make tough decisions. And I think there'll be a return to some of those at least by 2024. So in the next few days, the Senate's going to have an impeachment trial for the former president. How do you think the Senate should handle that? 
Well, I th- I hopefully way more soberly than the house did. I, I, uh, you know, look, I, my, my view of these things is, is more mid to long term, And I've said it publicly before, but I was concerned in the first place uh, with the way the impeachment came off the Senate. I mean, off the house floor with no hearings, it's obviously a moment of, of high passion I thought it denigrated the process. I mean, an impeachment trial is a big deal. Okay. It's one of the most serious things, as you know, other than declaring war that, that, you know, Congress does. So, uh, so, you know, people say, well, shouldn't he be punished? My worry was that, you know, as much as people may have been pulled off of Trump by virtue of his conduct, especially after the election, you know, this well less, uh, some people fell off, thankfully, and hopefully more will. But who do they like less than any human being in the world if they're Republicans, with all respect? I mean, to have uh, Speaker Pelosi be the face of trying to undo him. I'm sorry, I'm just talking not about constitutional issues. It just seemed to me that it was going to strengthen his hand to a degree. And to the extent that the, the Senate impeachment, which it feels like, uh, may not may not get to 67 votes. That's just strengthened his hand. I do think Republicans are rightly concerned about constitutional issues. I, I don't know the constitutionality of trying a former president. I, I really don't. I know they've had this Jonathan Turley or in talking with them. And, and less, you know, the big debates in the Senate take place at lunch, not on the Senate floor. Um, so so um, if it if it does occur, I know that, you know, a couple of senators are working on a censure instead. Um, if it does occur, I hope that it will be done in a sober manner. And really, senators shouldn't be saying how they're going to vote. I mean, as you know, they're they're jurists. Uh, and so they should listen to the evidence and uh, and vote their conscience again, if it occurs. Um, and we'll see if it does. Let's talk about President Biden. He's been talking about unity uh, pretty consistently since the end of the campaign during the transition and for his first few days in office. What do you, what do you think of that message? Is it, is it legitimate? And if so, how long can he maintain that and try to lead the the nation really in a kind of nonpartisan or bipartisan manner? Well, you and I both know uh, president Biden and, you know, I came on the foreign relations committee and when I was first elected and sworn in in January of 07 and he was chairman, ultimately I became chairman and it's where we work together. Um, he's a, I like him a lot as a person. Um, I don't know of anybody who knows him that doesn't like him and, and his life story of tragedy within his family and how he handled it. Uh, we worked with him a great deal when he was vice president. Um, I love. I thought his comments at the inauguration were mostly uh, very, very good, and I thought the people they had—that young lady who who did the poem—my gosh! I've asked our staff if they can find her address so I can send her a note. I mean, she was just so inspiring, and so there was so much about it that I thought was spectacular. But then, you know, he comes into office, and you know, I didn't vote for Trump, and I didn't vote for Biden. I didn't. I, I knew. I knew Trump too well to vote for him. Um, and by the way, uh, now I think other people have gotten to know him the way that I knew him. Uh, uh, it hadn't made enough difference yet, but they've they've gotten to know him. And as much as I like Joe Biden, I, 
I, I knew where policy he was going to go, and I couldn't support that. Okay, I just couldn't. And you and I both have a lot of friends that have come into the administration. You know, I've texted with several of them, as I know you have. Um, but it's been like whiplash, hasn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. So you can talk unity, uh, and I do think that's his natural tendency. I mean, he is a person that I think is not just naturally divisive. I think he does want to bring people along. But gosh, as I've been saying all along, hey, it's the policies. And uh, it really is like whiplash here to go from where we were to to where we're going. And uh, so I think that's the policies and the, 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 the tremendous differences already is, is probably undermined. And, you know, Les, I have no idea. They're, they're talking about doing this zillion trillion package uh, and they're going to do it through reconciliation they say um, I mean unless Joe Manchin and and uh, a few others have, have you know are going to be in a very different place I don't know how they're going to do that either uh, even with reconciliation so I, th- I think he's getting off to a rockier start he's done well with his confirmations and he has some people that you and I both know are very qualified to do their jobs but the talk was great putting things together has been good. The policies uh, obviously uh, are not that unifying. So uh, eight years ago, when Tony Blinken was nominated to be the deputy secretary of state, he was confirmed, but he only got two Republican votes. I think it was you and Senator Flake. Uh, Just a week ago, he got uh, 28 Republicans to vote for him uh, for his confirmation as Secretary of State. Do you yeah. th- do you think it's possible that at least in the Senate we're seeing a little more bipartisanship than people might realize? Well, I hope so. And you know, uh, uh, you and I both had a warm relationship with Tony, and and uh, um, you know, I enjoyed. He's obviously he knows foreign policy. Certainly knew foreign policy more than I did when I first got there, for sure. Um, um, so, uh, I hope so. I hope that's the case. I don't remember, I don't remember what it was that caused, uh, myself and Flake to be the only two to vote for him. Thanks for reminding me of that. I forgot all about it. I, I think I it was what... seen, if I, sorry to interrupt, I think yeah, it was no, seen as a, as a proxy vote on Syria policy and Senator McCain, of course, who was around then was very upset and kind of led yeah. a lot of Republican votes away from, from it, Tony. Yeah. And actually, I think Tony was more on our side of the Syria issue, if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's I hope that what you're saying is the case. And maybe uh, maybe because of even what happened on January 6th, maybe maybe people have talked a little bit and want to be a little more respectful of people who are qualified, but may share differing views than them realizing that it is the president's prerogative as long as someone is qualified and has the appropriate character and integrity, um, um, which Tony has, um, you know, that, that, that they should be certainly affirmed. Let's talk about some of the big challenges facing the Biden administration. China is the biggest one. Uh, there are our peer competitor or near peer competitor in the world. It's an adversarial relationship. China's been flying over Taiwan's airspace since Inauguration Day. There have been border clashes with India near Tibet. China seems to be kind of ramping up the heat to see how President Biden reacts. How do you think he's going to handle, how do you think President Biden's going to handle this challenge from China? Well, I think, I think he's going to handle it the way 
many people have been talking throughout the election, and that is that he's going to try to build alliances to deal with China um, and not do it the way President Trump did, which was mano to mano and, and these willy-nilly tariffs, you know, and just, it's just, you know, with no, so now let me say this. So I, I, so I do think he'll work with other countries to bring pressure to bear on China. China needs to have pressure to bear on them for all the intellectual property theft, the mercantilism, all the things they're involved in, there needs to be pressure. Now, it's going to be difficult because, as you know, I mean, a lot of our allies are doing a whole lot of business with China, okay, it affects their GDP, and so these alliances are are way more difficult to put together, especially as we've let it continue to creep over the years. But but that is the only way I think at the end of the day, um, we're going to be able to, to put the kind of pressure on that needs to be put in place. You and I met with Madam Fu numbers of times. And, uh, you know, as opposed to as opposed to our country where we speak with a thousand voices, right? I mean, you know, people overseas are, you know, they don't, it's hard for them to determine what our policy is. This senator may say that, the president may say that, secretary of state may say something different. Uh, in China, they all say exactly the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's top down. Uh, and the, what they worry about, as you know, is stability. One party system has to worry about stability. In our country, we've got an outlet for people to express themselves. And, you know, it's kind of gotten in a very divisive place now, which we've been talking about. But in their country, not. And so I still think China wants to continue its rise. I think they want to continue the stability. I don't think they're interested in skirmishes, but I think they're going to be pressing the limits nonstop. And, uh, and we've got to figure out a way with others to counter that. If it just is about us and China, uh, I don't think we'll get to where we need to go. But it is the single biggest, I know everyone says this, but, you know, and you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, history's fraught with con- one country surpassing another uh, economically and, and conflicts occurring. It is the most major uh, foreign relations issue for us to manage uh, the relationship with China. It dwarfs everything else that we have to deal with. One of my favorite memories of working for you was meeting with Madame Fu in Beijing in one of those super fancy halls that the Communist Party has, and you two talking about North Korea. And her advice to you was to just not worry about it. Yeah, just don't worry about it, you know. But again, uh, you're emphasizing the point of it because of stability, right? They didn't want to, they didn't want a bunch of North Koreans coming across the the river into China, um, and and destabilizing that part of their country. So, no question. Let me ask you about uh, the Middle East. Uh, President Trump had some success diplomatically with the Abraham Accords. You know these peace deals between Israel and some of its Sunni Arab neighbors. They seem like a very significant thing. What's your assessment of those? And is, are there other things that President Trump did well that President Biden would be advised to keep doing? Yeah, so uh, thank you for bringing that up uh, because, uh, you know, not everything about what's happened over the last four years has been negative for sure. But let's look at it. You know, if, you know, if you think about it, any Republican president would have nominated conservative judges. Any Republican president would have uh, worked on pro-growth tax reform. 
any Republican president would have done some of the deregulation that took place to allow the free enterprise to flourish any even more. The thing that singularly is a President Trump accomplishment that I'm not sure any other Republican president uh, would have handled. I know they wouldn't have handled the way he handled, but to get to the place that he got is a huge triumph. Uh, you know, because of some of the other activities, less that I'm involved in, um, I'm talking to folks in the in in the in the Middle East, and, uh, and it's about business. It's not about policy, but. But it's amazing what's happening right now. I mean, you know, the first step, of course, was, well, the first step really was having the summit uh, with the Arabs in Riyadh, right? I mean, having convening everybody. Most presidents would have met with the NATO folks, right? I mean, that's what I, that's what I would have recommended. Let's meet with our allies first. So, so he, he convenes this meeting. He then moves the embassy um, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which people were about passed out, and then... And but every every president said they were going to do it in years. And then he does away with the Iran agreement, which which, you know, was an organizing force for everybody. Right. There's Israel, the Arabs. And and what they've done by this normalization is phenomenal. I was talking to a guy that used to come to our office. I won't mention his name. Um, He had an office in Tel Aviv, He had an office in San Francisco. Um, I called him right as all this was breaking and, and, uh, and the phone rang like it does when it's long distance. And I said, you must be in, in uh, Tel Aviv. He said, no, you are not going to believe where I am. This is a Jewish uh, businessman, by the way. Um, I am in Riyadh. <laughs> I've got access to every, uh, you know, high level person here. They want to meet with me. It's going to be, uh, look less. It's, it's like a gold rush. I mean, just that normalization to be able to fly directly between the countries, what it's going to mean to, you're probably working on those in your business, but what it's going to mean to those countries um, and, and what it's going to mean politically, it is a huge breakthrough. And why the president didn't talk about those kind of things instead of how much he disliked somebody or, you know, some race of people or whatever, I don't know, but that I give them credit. And let's face it, I give Jared Kushner credit because it was Jared that made it happen. Um, Let's, you mentioned the Iran nuclear deal. Of course, President Trump took the U.S. out of it. Iran is now violating uh, the terms of that deal. The Biden administration has talked about either going back in or crafting a new deal. Of course, John Kerry is sitting there in the National Security Council and in the cabinet as the climate advisor. He's the one who put together the deal to begin with. Uh, What what would your recommendation to President Biden be about how he pursues a relationship or a a diplomatic initiative with Iran? Well, certainly, um, I, I know there's tremendous dislike of the former Trump administration, but he should build off what has happened. And uh, to me, the biggest mistake in the world would be to jump back into the agreement. Uh, you remember, Les, I know we talked about it, but, you know, there were the, the biggest flaw in the agreement was obviously the sunset provision, right? I mean, right. You, know, you kidding me? We had a 10-year sunset provision, but they can develop from SR, from they can develop uh, uh, incredibly sophisticated centrifuges while they're waiting and just be ready to off and run. So it was tremendously flawed. And, and um, first of all, 
whether they could even get to an acceptable agreement if they began talking about it. I, I mean, I, I, it's, um, I, I just think they should build off the strength that they have now together. You know, Iran, um, Iran's, you know, okay. So they're developing, uh, they're, they're highly enriched uranium. They're stepping it up a little bit They're You know, they're really being their own worst enemy right now. Right. I mean, they're, I've never known them to be that particularly bright in the things that they do. Um, but let's face it, they're just making the case. Uh, they're certainly showing something about their intentions, aren't they? Um, and so um, I, I think I think I would really slow walk it and try to bring, you know, we, we worked, by the way, when President Trump first came in, we worked with Tillerson, Ben Cardin, and I actually went over and, and drafted legislation to do away with the sunset provision and a couple of other issues relative to their missile research and development and all of that. And, and the administration, McMaster, uh, was working with the Europeans to try to do away with the sunset provision. And I think the French were open to that. The United Kingdom was open to that. It was Angela Merkel that, that really wasn't willing to even begin discussing it. And so that went kaboot. Uh, and that's when President Trump uh, decided that he was going to withdraw. So um, what, is, what Iran's doing right now is, is making the case, from my standpoint, why those things need to be dealt with. So one of the things that you did in the Senate that I think was very significant was write the law that compelled President Obama to bring the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, to the Senate and to the House for review. And, you, and your legislation gave Congress an opportunity to vote on that deal. Right. I, think, I think that had a huge impact on the debate going forward. And, and a lot of the criticisms, criticism we saw was because people saw what was actually in the deal in those short timelines. Do, do you think Congress should be playing more of an active role in that kind of review of foreign policy decisions by the president going forward? I do. And, and of course, you and Jamil, uh, if I remember correctly, probably wrote 98% of that. Uh, uh, and thank you. It was a great public service. But think about where we were last. We had a, a President Obama who, I think it was in May of the year we passed this thing. Basically, I wrote him a letter and asked him how he planned to, to incorporate this Iran deal. And he, he, within 48 hours, they wrote back. I was surprised. Well, we're going to we're going to do an executive agreement. We're going to go to the UN Security Council and, and ask for approval. So no vote by Congress, no presentation to Congress. Uh, pretty unbelievable. So we began to work. And if you remember, um, you know, almost no, you know, people of the same party really don't want to counter uh, presidents of the same party. And so, you know, we quickly, we realized we could never force him to turn it into a treaty like people thought. I mean, that's his decision, not ours. We, uh, we knew we couldn't do that, but could we force him to have to bring it to us and vote? And by the way, it's all those annexes that we put in there that I think actually gave Trump the ability to, to utilize the fact that they were in violation in certain cases to actually uh, undo the agreement. So, so it actually not, didn't just give us, and, and by the way, it gave us the ability to see, uh, to know all about the negotiations, to see all the intelligence. And so all of that gave people an understanding of what the deal really was, which helped undermine it. But, but think about where we were. Uh, uh, 
it's it's a it's funny how how public service is. So John Kerry's testifying in our committee, and you know, as you know, um, you can look around the committee and kind of get a sense of what people are thinking. You can tell what they're engaged in, and uh, and the big deal to me and to you and to Jamil and all of us was that that we put the sanctions in place. So Congress ought to have some role in undoing the sanctions. I mean, it really was Congress that brought Iran to the table. And let's face it, let's give Bob Menendez a, a lot of credit. He, he and others, ourselves, all of us, you know, we worked uh, to put those sanctions in place. So really the administration is just going to go to the UN Security Council and undo what Congress did. So, so that alone was causing people to, to have their antenna up. And so in a hearing, I ask the question or somebody asks a question, well, when, will Congress be able to play a role in alleviating the sanctions? It goes, oh, yeah, sure. And so the next question was, when? He goes, eight years. And I looked over at Tim Kaine, and I realized, you know, it was startling to Tim Kaine, right? And so we began with Tim. And then we got another. And then, and then you know, the, if you remember right before the vote in the committee to pass this great bill out, it's been maligned, by the way, by a lot of people who... Totally, you know, totally falsely maligned. Falsely maligned. I mean, you know, believe me, yours truly has been maligned greatly over something that I think was a Herculean effort on our part. But it passed out of the committee. But remember, there was no chance this was going to pass out of the committee passed unanimously, I think, and passed on the Senate floor 98 to 2. And yes, um, I think that's the kind of thing to answer your question in a long-winded way. That is the kind of thing Congress should be doing. But the fact is, administrations should bring those kind of things to Congress as a treaty. Um, We've seen what happened. Now, let's face it, I mean, other countries they don't know where the United States is going to be, right? When you do these executive orders, they get flipped the next time someone comes in. And now do they think President Trump might get reelected in 2024? Hope, hopefully not. Uh, hopefully never. But, but my point is, we'd be much better as a nation if Congress was involved in these things through treaties, not through executive orders. Amen. Uh, Grant, you get the last foreign policy question. Sorry to, yeah. sorry to filibustered so much there. No, uh, Senator Corker, thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with us. I, I know we, you hit on this a little bit, but um, it seems like politics has gotten a lot more performative than substantive yeah. uh, in recent years. How would you um, encourage uh, your, uh, uh, your fellow senators your former coworkers to change their ways and be more focused on substance? Or do you think there, there are bigger things at play that will need to change to change our politics? Well, uh, um, it's a great question. I, we, we used to, there were a few senators who, you know, I felt like, you know, I felt like I was there on a mission. Okay. And I, I never expected to serve more than 12 years. It's tempting after you've been there that long and you're chairman of a committee like that. Certainly it was something that I thought about before deciding not to run, but there, there, there are other senators who are there on a mission too. And one of the things that we used to talk about was our constant majoring in the minors. I mean, 
the big issues, it seems like, you know, we have these fights over, but, but I mean, I'm just going to use this. I realize that this day's come and gone. And until there's a crisis, it's probably not going to come up, but seriously. So we, we spend, you know, a, a huge amount of time on appropriations bills and a budget that's 35% of the budget. And we never talk about entitlements that are going to, going to like be bankrupt. Okay. Well, never, there's never, I don't remember a conversation that we had that was serious about that. So I do think for Congress to, to deal with the big issues that our nation has to deal with is important. And I think that in doing so would garner much more respect from the American people. It seems like that so much of it is over who shot John and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it is performative and actually in, in fairness, Grant, um, you know, the the executive branch has such dominance over foreign policy, and I'm switching off on you a little bit, but they really do. I mean, you know, we, we did a lot. It's a great privilege to be in the Senate, but the executive branch really, with the State Department and, and National Security Council, they, they sort of dominate foreign policy. And, and back to the performative uh, comment, I kind of felt like towards the end, Grant, I'd become a commentator or, you know, you're an influencer. You're trying to influence policy. But uh, I do think that Congress, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, a great example, Grant, uh, when the president, President Trump started abusing the authorities in the 1974 Trade Act, where he was using the national security waiver to put Put, to put tariffs on Canada and Mexico and the European Union really under national security. So, so I remember leading the charge on the floor to, to, but, but, you know, I'm sorry. I think there were like seven people who co-signed with it, but what an abuse of authority. Okay. I, I could use abuse of something else, but an abuse of authority. And that was a moment where Congress, whether you are Democrats or Republicans, Democrats wouldn't join because they kind of like putting tariffs on other people that might help organize labor in America. Uh, or let me put it this way, they didn't want to counter organized labor in America. So we ended up in this situation where, really, seven senators uh, co-sponsoring something to rightly have the power. Now, it may have been that some people wanted to put those tariffs in place. May have been. I don't think so. But but that's a great example of of sort of a personality based uh, base, you know, the Democrats, their base. It was it, it, instead of Congress standing up and taking its rightful role on that particular issue, we missed an opportunity. And every time we do this, as Les knows and, you know, every time we do that, the executive branch gets stronger the norms change, and it's even more difficult for Congress uh, to assert its role. And that's why the point Les made about that Iran giving Congress the ability to weigh in. I don't remember that happening, Les, in modern times where Congress stood up and said, no, this is not going to happen, and we need more of that to to occur. All right, Senator, I have to ask you this question since you are uh, probably one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever to be in the Senate. Who are you with, the hedge funds or the day traders on Reddit? <laughs> you know, I I read something about it last night. You know the way these papers are, Les. You know, you you know, I read you read them in the morning, you read them at night because they're constant. 
and I was reading the Wall Street Journal last night and this morning. I, I don't even get what's going on, okay? The Reddit thing. I, I'm a dinosaur. But uh, I, I, I just got an update. It looks like there's been a 40% drop in value. So I, I hate to be the people that were holding it last night when they went to bed. Uh, but I'm with neither. You know, I'm an old-fashioned guy and probably not too intelligent. I don't think I own a share of stock right now. And I uh, and I've missed an opportunity, so everybody on the on this watching this is going to laugh at me. But uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to invest in things that I'm actually doing, and and uh, the volatility. I have no idea why the market's at close to thirty one thousand today. I, I don't get it. Um, but my job uh, is today uh, is building companies myself, and then through Jeffries, uh, helping other people uh, build companies and. That's something that's more to my suiting than, than day trading uh, in things I don't understand. Uh, Senator, we'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you again for, for being with us today. Uh, it's great to talk to you. We miss you in Washington. I know the Senate misses you, but it looks like you're thriving in Chattanooga. So uh, thanks again. It's great to be with you. And thanks for talking with me. And hopefully we'll do it again. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for his work as producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.